Inscription uh, is a trilingual tw- trilingual text made by King Darius in around 500 BC in eastern Iran. Trilingual text was comprised of Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite. And I'm kind of laughing at it because I just saw this funny meme the other day where it was like she always thinks it's a side girl, but it really be a uh, tri- trilingual text from. Um, old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite. <laughs> <laughs> sisters that they were born of this earth as well and they, they've just tricked us into believing that they're extraterrestrials Lazuli was their precious stone. of rising from the ashes we have wrapped up our Norse mythology month and we are heading into ancient Sumer and ancient Egypt pyramid Anunnaki desert origins these deep mysteries and the histories and today we are returning with one of our good friends this is his third time on the show on a third completely different topic because he is a well-versed man 
uh, is our friend Esoteric Eddie. RFTA News will be a little different today. We're going to play some clips from our live San Francisco meetup esoteric tour of the city. I had reached out to a few different potential tour tour group leaders that could give us some sort of um, broader understanding of the deep history of San Francisco and we were able to link up with Chris Carlson who is the author of Hidden History of San Francisco and a few other books. He's a wealth of knowledge and he gave us a great tour and you're going to hear just some of the stories. The rest will all be uploaded into a fun, flowy episode on the Patreon, as we do. And that being said, if you do want to support us, we have a Patreon for $3 a month with 60 plus hours of awesome content over there. You're more than welcome to go and join that if you want to support Rising from the Ashes. And we always have fun stuff in the works and projects on hand and releasing new things every week uh, on the regular feed that is on Patreon. It's uh, a little bit more sporadic. Sometimes it's a dump of multiple episodes. Sometimes it's just one, you know, whenever it comes up. But... That is what it is, and it is great, in fact, oh mundo. And if you still love the Fire Tribe and aren't ready to jump on the Patreon train, well, don't you worry. You can go join the Telegram group chat. Telegram is an awesome social media app that is like group messaging, that's like easy access scroll. I, I really like it. I, I, I was on Instagram for years, and I actually got kicked off of Instagram. Um, and since then, I, uh, you know, I don't use Facebook or anything, but since we started the uh, Telegram group, I, I fell in love with the platform. I mean, it's pretty cool, and it allows, like, multiple people to chat all the time like chat it's like you can do messages but also post gifs and videos and links you can even put full pdf books on there for people to snag and download so it's really great um platform in my opinion and you know we have it we might as well use it and so we uh have a great tribe of people over there currently and it's just knowledge dump and you know community constantly and if you guys are interested go ahead and join that there'll always be a link in the show notes i'm not going to hold you too much longer everybody we're going to get right into this rfta news San Francisco trip clips and then we're going to go into our awesome interview with our friend Esoteric Eddie about the Anunnaki and the ancient Sumeria to this RFG 
Hey everybody, we are here with Chris Carlson, uh, author and uh, San Francisco liver for how many decades? Well, I started doing Shaping San Francisco in the mid-90s when the buzz in town was all about interactive multimedia. And that, of course, is a term that's fallen by the wayside. But in those days, what it meant was we got busy working on our desktop computers and windows, trying to create a product about San Francisco history that was going to be uh, delivered to you on the latest state-of-the-art technology, CD-ROMs. <laughs> and we did. We actually produced a, a, our first CD, and our second edition was both on CD-ROM. But not only CD-ROM, we also uh, took that original title of the category, the work Interactive Multimedia, and recognized that that was essentially a lie or a misnomer, at least. And that the interactivity that it promised wasn't interactivity, it was just glorified multiple choice in a box, uh, as most computer projects and experiences are to this day. Somebody's got to put it in there or you can't experience it. And there's only so many things you could possibly encounter. And so, but we were interested in interactivity, which is kind of what you and I are doing right now. We're having a conversation. Right? You don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what you're going to ask. We don't know where the other people are going to interject. That's interactivity. That's what we're interested in in life. And so our project was uh, pre presented in public places for free on public kiosks that anybody could sit down and look at. And we did it in public libraries and grocery stores and community centers. And all of these things were uh, where places where people could then interact with our project for free, sitting looking at it. And the idea was that somebody would come up behind them and go, what are you doing? And they go, oh, well, I'm just playing with this weird thing these weird commies made. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and they go, oh, well, what about that thing? And they'd look at something on the screen, and they might have an argument about it. It's like, that's what we wanted. Exactly. Because history is contested. Hist ah, history, history is, we actually characterize history as a creative act of the present. We are making history right now, having this conversation. We That's make right. history all day long, every day. All of us do. Yeah. But our society teaches us that only specialists with fancy degrees make, can, can actually make history in that way. Ah. Our argument is the opposite. We think everybody makes history all the time, and that very few of us have gotten used to exercising that self-critical muscle that, that recognizes our own agency as agents of history. Uh, let me ask you this question. Across the older part of downtown San Francisco, where a lot of the older architecture is, uh -huh. there's flagpoles on every building top, for the most part, right? Yes. I, I, I just noticed that one time when we were here last time, you know, there's, there's all these... The right there, yeah. What? Why? Why? Is it for flags, or is it... Like, was it for old wires? There's no reason. There's it's no just one of those architectural features that people decided to do. They put a pole on it. Yeah. It's like somehow show to your patriotism or something like that. I was wondering if it had it to might do. date to World War II, but I don't have any evidence for that. I don't know if it started then when everybody was waving the flag, or if it has an earlier point of origin, maybe even World War One. Well, World War One was interesting with San Francisco history because of the uh, the PPIE, right? Well, the PPIE happened during World War One. It didn't happen during the San Francisco's or the United States's participation in the war. That came afterwards. Well, there, what was happening was the U.S. military was running around, and as soon as the PPIE ended, General John Pershing took an expeditionary force from San Francisco and invaded Mexico. 
in 19, early 1916, and he was down there for nine months trying to catch Pancho Villa in the deserts of northern Mexico, unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. And then during that time is when a giant bomb went off down here, a terrorist bombing on a parade that was met, that was staged by the Chamber of Commerce to get us all excited about joining World War One, called Preparedness Day. Oh. And there had been one of the same name already in um, New York, also staged by the Chamber of Commerce. I see a lot of connections between New York and San Francisco. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few, a lot of competition in the minds of San Franciscans, not much in the minds of New Yorkers. But. Do you mean the mines or the mines? Like the, yeah. the mineral mines or the mines? No, no, the mines, there's no comparison, there's no mines in New York, but uh, the, in the intellectual space that is occupied by San Francisco's wealthy elite, which I'm only an observer of through time, um, they always wished to be the New York of the East Coast, of the West Coast, you know, oh, sure. and, they, and they wanted to be equally important financially. And you know, we call Montgomery Street Wall Street of the West. And uh, you know, a lot of the plans for, for San Francisco was a great book by my friend Gray Brecken called Imperial San Francisco, that really lays out the vision of the ruling oligarchy here to become. You know, the center of a Pacific empire, the, the capital of it. I like that word oligarchy, but you know, generally, uh, that when it rolls off the tongue, it's so nice, but when it really hits you, it's something else, huh? Oh, yeah, it doesn't feel so great when you realize, <laughs> when you realize that you're living in one. Because <laughs> I like it, like oligarchy. It almost sounds like a yeah. chanting word uh, that you could put in a transit state. <laughs> oligarchy, oligarchy. New Montgomery. So, yeah. He was uh, punched through to there and got stopped there. But the guy who built it, uh, got permission to build it, built the Palace Hotel, which is the biggest and oldest hotel right there. Built, uh, you can just barely see it from here. It's on the left, and it takes up from that little alley there where the flags are out in front uh -huh. all the way to Market Street. Ah, uh, so. And it was, there's lots of photographs of it. It was built in 1875, and it was the first giant hotel west of the Mississippi. Market Street is where a lot of the older architecture sits for downtown, right? Actually, more, some of it's on Market, but most of it's in down Montgomery Street and on California and Battery and Sansa. Battery? What's the history behind Battery Street? Just, it, it was in the water. It was originally a pier, and it didn't become a street until decades after the city was started. Hmm. You'll notice as we get down here, so New Montgomery was supposed to go all the way through to, to Mission Bay, and they blocked it in the state legislature. They wouldn't let him finish it, and it was part of his uh, failure to essentially take over the city completely. So. Oh. It's a whole different period of time. There was actually, a, he, had, he and a, a colleague named Asbury Harpending had gotten a law passed that would allow them to take down the entirety of Rincon Hill, which is right here, goes up right here. And uh, they, they passed the legislature, it was gonna be the law, and they were gonna actually level this entire hill and put it into the bay, which was going on here for over 100 years, was flattening hills and putting all the debris and the sand ah. rock into the bay. So it was even hillier at one point. Oh, much so. We <laughs> have no idea. All right, everybody. So uh, for everybody listening that's not anywhere near San Francisco and has only, you know, quote-unquote, dreamed of coming to such a golden city as this, it is very hilly. It is very hilly. Yeah, uh, this neighborhood we're in now is relatively flat. It wasn't. Historically, this was... A giant 200 foot tall sand dunes around us and this hill right here this is Rincon Hill 
and it's where the Bay Bridge lands, is on the hill. Ah. But it used to be 120 feet taller and much wider. What? And they cut it down. The bridge here. itself? No, the the hill. Oh, I was like, the bridge was 120 feet taller? That used to be, see where the, the ramps that go across yeah. the, for the freeway? Come yeah. Off the Bay Bridge? Whoa! That's how tall the hill used to be. Look at the moon. And there's the moon. Look at the moon, it's beautiful. You guys see the star right next to it? Happy eyes to see. There's an invisible third human feces in the middle. Oh, and that is you. The (laughs) all-encompassing feces. The all-seeing feces pile. Thank you, Roman. (laughs) I feel like you're going to pick up the paycheck. How firm is this on me? Look at this on me. guy named Anton Refrigier, who's an unreconstructed Stalinist. I'm going to share a few things with you guys here first before, uh, first of all, let me just tell you, I didn't do any proper introductions. My name's Chris Carlson. I've been doing Shaping San Francisco since the mid-90s. It started as a, a vision of a game, and then that was when Mist and SimCity and all that was a big Can't game. remember Mist. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought we were going to create a game that was based on a bike messenger making a pickup in an office and then going down the hall and getting in the elevator and then while in the elevator the next big earthquake would strike. And we had it all animated. Earthquakes shaking the elevator. And then the, the guy comes out of the elevator and he's been knocked into the past. And he has to find his way back to the present by solving problems. And then as we worked on it for a year and a half, we realized that's really boring. <laughs> game, who cares about points and games? It's like the history itself is so interesting and so complicated. So we just dropped the whole game thing, which was much to the chagrin of my animating partner. Aww. And uh, we ended up moving in a different direction. So we came out with CD-ROMs and public kiosks back in that era when interactive multimedia was the buzz in town. And the only interactivity we believed in or cared about was conversations between people. When you're talking to a computer, you're not talking to a computer. You're having glorified multiple choice in a box. <laughs> so meanwhile, we created all this stuff, and then we hit a bunch of technical cul-de-sacs because of the stupidity of the software industry. And we eventually put it out again as what it is today at foundsf.org. It's a giant sprawling archive online. Everybody's invited to contribute. It's an open archive that grows constantly with new contributions from different people. And the idea is that we all make history every day. We're making history right now doing this. And history is a creative act in the present. It's actually something we need to argue about. There's a lot of things that are, and, you know, we don't agree about history. That's fine. It's, that's what it should be. It should be contested. And so yeah. that's the fun of it, actually, once you get into it. Of course, you have to respect each other and treat each other civilly while you're having those arguments. But <laughs> in any case, I wanted to share with you some visuals. And then I'm going to tell you about the history of these murals because it's a really fascinating story in itself. But just quickly, here we are. This is the, uh, that same map that I was showing out of uh, Vanished Waters earlier. And we're here in the water, actually, right now. So we're just down in this area, right, right there, which is still, this is all landfill. So for 100 years, from the time that the Americans showed up here for the gold in 1849 until the early 1960s, everybody thought it was a good idea to make land, to fill the bay. And the reason is because it stank. So people kept smelling the raw sewage, right? Raw sewage poured into the bay until the 1970s, until we passed the Clean Water Act. <laughs> That was just normal. You just wore your crap. We were down at the we were down at the Golden Gate Beach yesterday, 
or something, and there was like a, a, a sewer running through to the, or I don't know if it's a sewer drain, but it was it. Something Bay Beach, right next to the Golden Gate on the. There's old sewer outlets around. They're not actually discharging anymore, except right. in a dire emergency. They're just drain, It's just water draining. Yeah, it's water. But anyway, that history of filling the bay was uncontested for all those years. And then finally, in the early 60s, there was three women who worked, had husbands at UC Berkeley, and they lived in nice houses up in the Berkeley Hills. And they looked out at the bay every day, and they loved their view. And then they heard that Berkeley was going to fill 4,000 acres. And they're like, what? We don't want that to happen. And so they started a campaign to save the bay. And because they were connected politically, they got, in two years, a law passed at the state legislature called the McAteer Petrus Act, which created the first regional agency of its kind called the Bay Conservation and Development Commission that regulates the filling of the bay. And by a miracle, it's done its job. Filling with anything. Anything. You cannot fill anything into the bay without their permission. No, no, but what what do they fill with? Well, Trash. land, big land, like buildings, developments, like Pier 39. I know, I'm saying like concrete, China. shell, you dirt, soil. It it's actually becoming a problem because now they want to do oyster bed restoration work to help deal with sea level rise. Mm. And because of that old law, you can't just pour shit into the bay. You have to get their permission. So yeah, like the yeah. there should be a consensus on, you know, what is used, yeah. I think, all around. You know? Well, that's, it's all underway. That's the... But anyway, this is just to give you an idea, a nicer color version of that map. And then yeah. out here is the Mission District. But we're right there in, the, in this area that filled in earlier. This whole cove was much bigger. So here you can see uh, the map of, uh, this is the original giant sand dune that ran from the beach all the way out here to the bay. This was all sand. And it wasn't like a Sahara dune sand, although it was out here. Right. But in here, it's a scrub dunes landscape. That was a typical San Francisco. In fact, I can even show you what that looked like. I got an image of it. Uh, this is a show, this sh all the pink areas are landfill, and the blue areas are, are year-round water that still is water, even though we put cement on top of it and think it's gone away. <laughs> wow. uh, classic. There you go. So this is a picture from Knob Hill. This is that Mission Bay, that huge body of water coming in. And Mission Plank Road, we were walking down Mission all this time, right? That's Mission Plank Road right there, running through the sand dunes. Wow. Built of, of wooden planks. And this is from 1856, this photograph. So that's what San Francisco. This is what people came here and decided, oh, I can make a living here by putting a house in that sand dune. Imagine right. you know, the unlikeliness of that idea. Right. And yet, of course, we know what had happened. It all, it all went the way they wanted it to go. And they started building like rapidly, right? Like it was like yeah. a Parts of the city grew, grew quite, I mean, you can see it in this first map. So this is the dense part of the city, this is 1869. And that picture you just saw is 1856, looking across here. Mm. Oh shit! So that's like 12 years or in 1869, this got pretty dense. But out here, you know, this is all south of Market. This is the middle of Polk Street area. Damas, nothing here. Mission so District. that's just mountain and land, right there. Yeah, you've got hills, Potrero Hill. This is Knob Hill and Russian Hill are here. Uh, when, Twin Peaks and all that back here. When did they start expanding west over towards like Golden Gate Park and that side? Much later. Like the Golden Gate Park is a, is a built in the dunes as a vision of competing with New York Central Park. We've got to be bigger than that. So right. make it a little bit bigger. And they start going out there. And the only reason it could work is because they had a, a sort of happy miracle. They start trying to like landscape it. You can't landscape sand. sand. So what happened is the yeah. horses were shitting out there. And they had barley in their poop. And it turned out that the barley seeds took and quickly. And they could mix horse shit with other soils that they would bring in and they could develop a soil base to create a European landscape because it's just completely alien to San Francisco, what's right. out there. 
It's a nice park, I and mean, it's a great park, but when you're out there, just know it was built on horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> the city of San Francisco farmers. Farm. Everything's built on shit. <laughs> 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 Everybody went to the park to kind of get out Not all of them. Every park, every open space that they could find, every hilltop. But it's the same as pretty much open that way, even at that time, right? In 1906, yeah, absolutely. The whole west side was still outside lands, and it was generally sand dunes. There's actually video footage of gliders going across the sand dunes oh, wow. in 1906. 1910, I think it is, and it's still undeveloped entirely. It was all real estate speculation and scamming by uh, rail line builders that began to create it. And, Willie, and Michael de Young, who owned the Chronicle, you asked about World's Fairs. Mm -hmm. Michael de Young, who owned the Chronicle, whose brother was shot by an angry son of a politician who he had been def defaming in the paper. Uh, the surviving son, uh, Michael, uh, makes the Chronicle into the number one newspaper in the, in the city and then owns tons of sand dunes on the south of Golden Gate Park. So he wants to raise the value of the sand dunes. How does he do that? Let's have a World's Fair in January in 1894 to show that San Francisco is a great place to be in the winter and invite the, the East to come. And so that he, he it's like some convinces Florida. the city like the founding and, of Florida. and the gardeners to actually let them put a, a bunch of buildings in the park, which the gardeners are like, fuck you, you're not wrecking our park, no way. But they forced their way through because they had the money and the power. And they built this whole village out there, which is still remnants of the De Young Museum, the Academy of Sciences, and that whole concourse area. It's all from that time, originally. The architecture has been improved and renewed. But uh, that was part of the vision of why they had a World's Fair in that particular moment. And it was a relatively small one. It's called the California Midwinter Fair of 1894. Is it timeshare time sales? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, then flash forward to this place. So this is at the end of the Depression, at the end of World War II. And it was in, right at the beginning of World War II in 1940. The United States doesn't enter until the end of 41, of course, so people often forget it. So the war is raging in both arenas, but the US is sitting on its hands going, well, we don't want to get involved. And uh, while they're doing that, they're still trying to get out of the Depression. And then they have these various projects created by the federal government to fund artists. And one of them was the WPA, which the murals in Coit Tower from that and several other clusters of murals around town are. But these are not. These are from the Treasury section uh, of the uh, federal government of the Department of Treasury, who actually went through a competition to choose an artist to do the murals in the post office that they ran. And so out of 80 artists, this guy was chosen. His name's Anton Refrigier. Born in Russia, he was absolutely pro-Joe Stalin, and he got the contract in 1940, and then the war interceded, and they couldn't start, and they finally got started in 1947. So he's in here starting to do, these are actual These gave me some Stalin vibes. I don't know what it was, you know? Total Stalin. Okay, yeah. cool. Did you check this one out? Yeah, I, I mean, it's... So the story starts here, <laughs> and then we're going to follow the story along. Uh, I'm going to rapidly take you forward all the way down to the 1870s down there at the other end, then we're going to come back this way to go out. But just to show you, the last panels here are of the UN, the founding of the United Nations, which happened here in San Francisco in 1945. It was part of the U.S.'s creation of its Pax Americana post-war plan, along with uh, the general agreement. Right, the early war the horn. That one is yeah. the UN. With the horns? Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the thing that happened is that they forced him, the artist, to take out the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt in this one, the freedom, the four freedoms. Oh, yeah. They used to have his portrait of Roosevelt, and, they, and because the people that were fighting this guy were so right-wing, they were like, can't have Roosevelt in that. He's a, he's a communist. Wow. So uh, that's the kind of the, the deal. But let me read you the story. This is by my friend Gray Brecken, who actually did the research to dig into what actually happened during that era. So on um, 
The New Deal programs proliferated in the years that followed. Of the art bureaucracies that followed the, the, this one, the Treasury section of painting and sculpture, known simply as the section, offered the most prestigious and lucrative prize. Created by executive order of Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau on October 14, 1934, the section would ensure high caliber work in the public buildings by selecting artists in juried competitions. In 1940, the jury selected this guy, Anton Refugee of Woodstock, New York, from among 82 contestants. They agreed to pay him $26,000 to design and paint a chronological history of the city in 27 panels. A delighted refugee told the reporters he had worked five solid months preparing his designs. And so then he begins this process of, of painting once he finally gets going here. And while he's in painting, people are coming from the end of their work days in 1947 and yelling at him because of his politics and, and really giving him grief. So he has to actually hang drapes that he hides behind while he's painting because of the hostility of these Republicans coming in and yelling at him. But he ends up finishing the art. And then several years later, you get to the point where uh, there's all this, you know, people are yelling about the art too, they don't like it. The Catholic Church protested that a friar, which is down there, see where that mission is, about four panels down, and when you get there you'll see this. The Catholic Church protested that a friar preaching to Indians at Mission Dolores was too fat. Refrigerate, refrigerate slimmed him. In 1947, the Public Buildings Administration ordered Refrigerate to take President Roosevelt out of the panel of four freedoms. <laughs> the artist claimed that a Republican Congress had initiated a campaign to discredit the late president and the legacy of his New Deal. Although he called on the people of San Francisco to support his refusal to carry out the order, he eventually complied, but his troubles had only begun. <clears throat> the Republican Party in 1953 took control of both the White House and the Capitol. With Richard Nixon as Vice President and Representative Don Darrow as Chairman, he was a guy from your, your neck of the woods up there in the northeast, Northwest. He was the Chairman of the House Committee on Public Works. Congress prepared to undo the New Deal and to roll back the red tide of modernism in Nixon's home state. Anton Refugier's murals were the first works to be tried for themes inconsistent with American ideals and principles. Hmm. On the morning of May 1st, 1953, the House Committee on Public Works convened in Washington, D.C. to debate the destruction of one of the largest and most expensive artworks ever commissioned by the federal government. The artist, Anton Refugier, according to Republican Representative Herbert Scudder of Sebastopol, had foisted upon the American taxpayer propaganda designed to slander the state's pioneers and convert patrons at San Francisco's main post office to communism. In its day-long deliberations, the committee put history as well as art on trial. <clears throat> Let's see, what was number seven? Same thing happened with Diego Rivera. Yeah, very similar. Representative Scudder opened the hearing by telling his committee that Refrigier had been born in Moscow and that his office had been flooded with complaints from the American Legion, daughters of the American Revolution, veterans of foreign wars, the Sailors Union of the Pacific, and other patriotic organizations. The young Democrats of San Francisco charged the murals with being little short of treason. They offered a statement that occurred verbatim in nearly every protest that Scudder read into the congressional record was that, quote, said murals do not truly depict the romance and glory of early California history, but on the contrary, cast a most derogatory and improper reflection upon the character of the pioneers, and the other murals are definitely subversive and designed to spread communistic propaganda and tend to promote racial hatred and class warfare. Fred Drexler, a retired newspaper reporter, testified that a postal worker at Rincon Annex had told him Quote, the government ought to increase his pay to make up for his suffering in seeing these murals. <laughs> so there you have it, this kind of insane thing that happened, and they didn't destroy them. And then they were, they I mean, had. It wasn't that insane, he was a fellow of Stalin. 
He was a follower of Stalin, but so calling him a communist isn't really that weird, right? Calling the art communist is a little weird. But his, 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 that's the whole thing. It's an art puts their view and their worldview into well, the art. You tell me if you think these are communist art. No, just it has that. I don't think it's a real twist. Yeah. Yeah. Like this one, this one's horrifying. This one is so crazy. So crazy. Yeah. They're running. Interesting. So anyway, one of the things that they objected to a lot was the modern modernist style of painting to paint people with these angular faces yeah. and these kind of different sort of bodies and things like that. I'm gonna leave this stuff here and we'll just take a little walk down here. That full of abs, dude. So I thread it out. Prominent butt cheeks. Who is the conquistador pictured on the, with the globe? That's the French. The other thing they objected to was you put the Indians in the front and show that they do work. Oh. Looks like, no, Indians, they're just savages. They don't do work. In fact, that's completely false. The yeah. entire California economy is based on Indian labor. Well, and even when they were uh, nomadic, if they did work, yeah. they just didn't stay in one They radically altered the landscape. They would, they would take care of the land, propagate things, so when they came back to that area, they would have this. Yeah. because of the, uh, of the portrayal of gold miners as essentially demented. They were like, oh. you know, they were mad with gold, gold, gold fever. fever. Mm -hmm. And they're looking, you know, kind of like askance at everything. Just people thought, this is an insult <laughs> to, to the gold miners. It's like, come on, it's perfectly reasonable. Very reasonable. And you see the jealousy in the people in the background. Yeah. And, and how, how are they separating it uh, from like the pieces of quartz and stuff that they would find the gold in? We know. I don't know stuff. that. There is a way to amalgamate it with mercury. Yeah. So you throw, you know, mercury, cinnabar, or yeah. whatever. Which is a lot of cinnabar mines around yeah, here as well, south right? Of San, south of San Jose. It's almost yeah. like where you find cinnabar, you find gold? No, they don't. They, you find uh, it one, in one place. Oh, it's usually where magnetite is. Oh. So this one here is really fun because it's, it's such yeah. an odd-looking image, right? You see these men marching with torches, and it's just called on the map on the sign of their torchlight procession. Like, who would carry a sign where it disappears off the top right. of the image? Yeah. So what is this about? So this is at the end of the Civil War. In San Francisco, there was this explosion of the eight-hour day movement. Mm. And so workers in every category of work started to get the eight-hour day by just taking it. They weren't negotiating with the owners. They had no other labor they could turn to. There was no railroad connected yet. The only way anybody got here was the long way around or through the Panama Isthmus or you know, wagon trains, but no way you could really replace your workforce with skilled laborers. So everybody knew that. So various workers started declaring that at the start of the next month, we're gonna work eight hours a day instead of 14. We're gonna pay us the same money. And of course the owners are freaking out. So the owners found a 10 hour league to compete with the eight hour league, but nobody really joins the 10 hour league. Mm -hmm. And so and within a few weeks, months, you've got this eight hour day for almost everybody who's in San Francisco. In 1868, the state of California passes an eight hour law. And so, of course, that, that prevails for a while. But this particular march happened in 1867, where several thousand workers marched up Market Street in the order by which they had taken the eight-hour day. And that original sign said, ship caulkers for the eight-hour day. And they forced them to paint it out, because that was communist propaganda in 1948. So, you know, it's fun. That reminds me of when San Francisco was known, at least on the West Coast, for taking the first $15, do $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. 
So it seems like they like have this kind of like. Well, San Francisco has a long history as a labor town, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Along, there's a lot I of find it very odd that everybody's dressed in a suit. Yeah. This is laborers, but yeah. they're all dressed in suit. With well, you, you know, it's interesting to think about that for a second because actually, if you go back to the Civil War and right before it, politics was completely different than we understand it. Like there was no class yet. People didn't think of working class as an entity that they would have speak to, nor right. women, nor any other group of people. It was all about honor and. No bourgeoisie. Well, there certainly was, an, uh, you know, the owners, they ran the show, but they also, the people who ran for office didn't run by appealing to constituencies. Their, their constituency was all the people at this set of bars mm -hmm. who believed they were the most virtuous person, mm -hmm. the most honorable. So it was a more spirit. And so for that reason, well, it was more like just on your reputation. And if your reputation was besmirched. That, that was what they would try to do. And so they, they got their reputation besmirched as often happened. So right before the war, the Civil War, uh, David Broderick was a senator from California, and the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court insulted him. And then he threw insults back, and they challenged each other to a duel. Oh. And they had a duel out by Lake Merced, in the South, it was just south of the city border. And David Terry was a pro-slavery, pro-Southerner, Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, and Broderick was the free soiler. And that was the new movement within the Democratic Party that was anti-slavery, not because they cared about black people, but because they thought white people should not have competition from free labor, and they wanted to have free soil as the basis. You know, you could just go wherever you want and take land and start your life, and fuck the Indians. They didn't really come into the picture. And so that was the Democratic Party's liberal side, and the other side was called the chivalry, and they were pro-Southerners, pro, they were mostly from the South, and they were pro-slavery, and they wanted to keep, they even wanted to turn California into a slave state. So all that was going on in that moment, and then uh, the Broderick's gun mess, misfired, and then Terry, the slave, the slave, pro-slave guy, just took his time and bang, bang, bang. And it didn't kill him right away, but three days later, after a long wagon ride over to the Fort Mason, right over there, there's a couple of houses in Fort Mason, it's still there today, this Haskell house. He laid in that house and he finally died. And that was where all the abolitionists lived, was along that little shoreline of Fort Mason. Mm. So the other funny thing, just if you're a baseball fan, is that the eight-hour day movement had everything to do with the, the restarting of baseball in San Francisco. It had been very popular here in the 1850s, which was right at the beginning of the history of baseball. And then it, and Sandlot Baseball starts here, actually. That's where the term comes from. Oh, and, uh, and oh, because it was all sand. Yeah. Oh, shit. What else did you play on? <laughs> yeah. But in 1861, the, the California Pioneers was the number one team in the Bay Area, and they kept winning and winning, and whenever they weren't winning, delay the game and delay the game until the sun went down so they wouldn't lose. And people got so mad at them that they just said, fuck you, we're not playing with you anymore. And so baseball dies out in 1861. And it's the war and everything's going crazy and the economy has to be self -sufficient. It's the war, I'm just like, I'm playing baseball. I don't know about y'all, but. <laughs> but. Then at the end of the war, the eight hour day movement takes off and everybody's suddenly only working eight hours a day, they have time. Yeah. And suddenly baseball takes off again. And you have 16 teams in four divisions playing baseball with each other around San Francisco and the East Bay. And it's thanks to taking the time wow. from work. To nice. Work. So, and this is a work bill of the Chinese laborers who are here in the time doing very huge. San Francisco! Cocksucker! <laughs> These guys were uh, back home at the labor building railroads on the west side of the Sierras and up over the hills, of course, badly treated. And then over there, you see the 1877 anti Chinese riots. This particular panel in this corner presents this very white riot. It happened all over the West. It happened up as far as Vancouver and all the way down to San Diego. White, angry white workers would decide that 
Chinese labor was the cause of all the problems. The depression was real. Was real. There had been a very vast depression started by British banks that cascaded through the Europe and eventually over to the United States, and all these banks collapsed, and a Great Depression began. They called it the Great Depression in the 1870s. And uh, in San Francisco, as well as in other cities around the West, the workers, at a certain point on July 25th, 1877, they'd been rallying every day in the Civic Center sandlots. And this anti-Coolie League comes marching in towards the end of the day, blaming the Chinese for everything. And all these workers just sort of join with them, and they start this massive riot that goes on for three days. And their goal is to get down to where Pier 40 is today, which is where the Pacific Mail steamship docks was, because that was essentially the bus service for Chinese labor to get across the Pacific. And their goal was to burn down those docks so that it would shut off Chinese immigration. And that did not succeed, but it did lead to the, uh, after three days, in fact, there was much worse than things that happened throughout the rest of the West, like small cities, Arcata, Eureka, uh, Grass Valley, Nevada City, San Jose, Los Angeles, San Diego, every place burned their Chinatowns to the ground. And took all the Chinese and put them on a boat and said, 24 hours you get to get out of town and get to go to San Francisco. So all the Chinese from the West are coming here and concentrating in Chinatown where they're not allowed to buy property outside of. So it's a very dense neighborhood all the way through the whole history. But this was the worst moment in San Francisco's history. It was July 25th, 26th, 27th. Now, since you're interested in history, it's worth thinking about the context. True. Six years earlier, yeah. the Paris Commune happened. The first successful working class uprising that took over a whole city and ran it on their own terms two months in Paris and eventually slaughtered, 30,000 killed by the, the French monarchy. Um, soon, a few years after that, you start having these various types of giant strikes throughout the east coast of the United States. And in fact, at the beginning of June of 1877, just uh, six weeks before this thing happened, there was the, what's known as the Great Uprising. So the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had a strike start. And it went through all the cities of the east, Baltimore, Kansas, up to Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and they sent out troops, federal troops, to kill the strikers and get them back to work. And with the, when the, because it was Rutherford Hayes who, you know, end of Reconstruction, he gets, the Republican gets to be president and grounds that they stop, take the troops out of the South. So now he's got troops, he's going to use them. And he uses them against striking workers and suppress the strike. But those strikers were, were coming here. A lot of that strike made it here. And there was actually actions on the railroads here in San Francisco and on Central Pacific and Southern Pacific Railroads. And then by the end of the month, in July, all these angry workers have kind of been in the stew of being pissed off at the wealthy people and figuring out how they're going to get their, their own. Uh, did, do you know anything about the size of the hats having to do, or the shape of the hats having to do with people's class or wealth? No. I mean, fedoras were very common during that whole year, all the way until the 1940s. I'm just like looking at these guys got top hats. These guys got short hats back there. You know, these guys got long brim hats, yeah. and they're all like, you know, kind of different or whatever. And I was like, yeah. oh, this is Abe Lincoln yeah, time. Field workers are at Rome. Yeah. These are not field workers. No. This is what I'm talking about over here. Yeah. yeah. These guys are not field workers. All these guys, all these guys are dressed up in nice tuxes with little bow ties and wearing hats. This guy here. He has a field to work for floppy hat to keep the sun out of his eyes. These aren't to keep the suns out of these guys' eyes. They've never been in the sun. So, that's right. and that—that's what I'm—that's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's obvious like a di like. These guys were mostly like printers and, and uh, yeah. various types of the higher up more nobility. Yeah, and like what the fuck was the deal with the top hat in that era? Why you need that much hair? <laughs> hey, you know what?
to this RFTA From the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty of summer scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary Yeah, yeah, Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time vibing with the fire tribe Hey, so wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the combo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up. We about to get into it. I know you can't get enough at home, at work. It don't matter. Turn it up. Rising from the ashes. You know what's up. Hey. Uh, rising from the ashes. What's up, fire tribe? Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Daniel Naki Dan. And I'm the homie Romy. Oh, juicy, juicy tonight. Back with our good friend. Esoteric Eddie. There we go. <laughs> what up, what up? What's going hey, on, man? man? Welcome back. Not much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Peace and love. What up to everybody? Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, man. Just a whole lot of research. Just fried right now to be honest <laughs> you're a beast dude. you are you are a, a a man of valor with the work that you put on dude thank you oh, yeah. of course man it's uh and you're a crowd favorite dude every time we you know have you on and uh people are just like eddie fucking like you know like just can we get him back on and it's like oh absolutely if he'll have us we'll gladly talk to him but this this is cool because Oh, I don't know if we can say too many juicy things about a secret project that you're working on, but it fits into uh, 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 some some juice that we're going to get into this evening. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, working on uh, my second book. <clears throat> Technically my first book, but it was the first book I ever wrote, but I'm revising it, revamping it, making it actually professional, and uh, we'll be releasing that in September. So oh. second book, technically the first one I ever wrote, though. Excellent, man. And it's, it uh, seems like every time uh, we have you on, you just like fit the bill of what we're looking for at the time. It's interesting. Like I, I hit you up last time and you happened to be working on uh, the Tetscali Polka thing. And then I hit you up uh, a little bit ago to do Sumerian because we've talked about it before. And then here you are writing a book about the Anunnaki. That's just so fitting, yeah. man. I love it, dude. We're on like the same wavelength or something. Something's going on, Eddie. Yeah, yeah. Divine timing, man. There we go. Divine timing. Let's get into a little it's... bit of that divine timing, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the air, man. 24 magic carrot gold. Or how that <laughs> song goes. <laughs> yeah, let's uh can... Can we get into like the whole Anunnaki planetary story? Because there's like a interesting in like book one of the Sitchin series, he kind of talks about the formation of the planets and, and Marduk. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, so the book I'm writing is called the Anunnaki theorem and, uh, it centers around the Anunnaki, but, uh, it's, it's kind of, turned into a comparative theology piece and the reason being is because when i first wrote it back when i was like 22 23 which is damn i don't know i'm 28 now can't do the math <laughs> but <laughs> uh, 
When I first wrote it, man, I was like a Citroen fanboy, you know? I, I took all his word for, for, like, law, you know? But I, over the years, picked up some nuanced critiques of my own of him, and, and I listened to his, uh, you know, opposition and, and his debunkers because I didn't want to, like, just be blindly following what he said, you know? So over the years, I've realized where his flaws are, and so when I dived back into this book that I wrote back then to revamp, to revamp it, I was like, shit, man, I basically have to scrap this entire thing. If you, and I pretty much, I thought I was going to be revising it a little bit, but to be honest, I, I pretty much just wrote a completely new book, you know, and, uh, but, uh, because uh, my mind has changed towards his work, still think he was super important and integral to the truth of community and the world and, and uh, speculative academia. But, uh, you know, I have to be honest about my, his flaws. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the Enuma Elish, I, I get into that in my book. And <clears throat> as Sitchin points out, uh, rightfully so, it's, it's, a strange, it's a strange piece of literature coming from the Sumerians, some of the oldest literature known to man, let alone. And it's their creation story, their cosmology. And it's seemingly telling a tale of the gods. You know, when you read it for face value, it's like you're reading a war happening between different mm -hmm. gods. But he was, I guess, wise enough to see beyond that and, and notice some striking similarities with the numbers of gods and the numbers of planets in our solar system and kind of realize that the battle that was taking place, the quote-unquote battle, was probably actually just the uh, epic of how our solar system came to be in the way that it is now which is kind of a Velikovsky idea. You know, Velikovsky, the dude who kind of postulated that Saturn used to be our real sun and, and that our solar system was a lot more erratic than it is today. So Sitchin kind of rode with that idea and, and told us, you know, that the Enuma Elish is actually telling us how our solar system um, got organized into the structure that it is today. Um, so just, just from your research and your, uh, intuition, do, do you feel like their story could also be, you know, like a terraforming event? Like, could this galaxy have been in this paradigm? Of course, like then we can go into what you also really believe because, you know, that's so interesting and maybe different. Uh, but do you think that there was any, uh, um, talk of that in the Sitchin stories? Now I personally haven't read Sitchin stories. Um, Dan has, and I'll probably let him do most of the chatting on this one. Cause <laughs> honestly, when it comes to Sumerian stuff, I, I'm just, I, I, I follow the tidbits, but, um, is, is that a part of the story at all? Any, any terraforming, any manipulative, uh, technology to kind of create it? Um, <clears throat> Sitchin, uh, like probably alludes to stuff like that, but I haven't come across any actual Sumerian texts that talk about something like that. Um, not like terraforming, you know, because I guess what you mean by terraforming is like, I mean, when I think of terraforming, I think of like aliens hurling like, you know, like seed pods or something like that, you know, to like suit, like, like get the planet's atmosphere and geography or whatever ready for life mm -hmm. to be habitable on an organ or organ organismic level or biological level. There we go. Uh, <laughs> that's my hood fabulous coming out. Sorry. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, but interestingly enough, what I did come across is apparently the oldest text known to our history, right? Because there's like the like the Atlantean history, but the oldest known text that we have comes from Sumer. And um, strangely enough, what it is is actually the gods praising themselves for building some structures. What they are, we don't know. And some of the oldest texts that the Sumerians have um, in regards to praising the gods are praising them for agriculture and for artificially digging canals and making stuff like this. So in that sense of terraforming, um, like domestication of the land to make it suitable for civilization, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. That is forming on the terra. I mean, you know, some sort of manipulation to make livable societies. So I, I can totally dig it. Um, I think they talk I, about Enki raising up Egypt from from like mud or mush or something. Yeah, I know. I know what you're referencing. I don't remember exact remember exactly um, what text or what civilization that came from, but I know that Sitchin and some other scholars too kind of linked Enki with Ta. Uh, P-T-A-H, mm-hmm. which is a, a strange, like, um, father deity in the Egyptian pantheon. Like, everybody talks about Osiris, Horus, Peter. Ra. Yeah. Peter means father. Thing, like, yeah. So, Ptah is father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ptah, he's like this strange deity that never gets really a lot of, like, clout, but he's actually, like, the originator of the gods and in the Egyptian stories. And Sitchin went to great lengths and some other scholars have to connect him with Enki and uh, Ptah is known as the like the uh, the engineer, the artificer, the creator and stuff like that, but like more so on like a domestication level an aggregation, uh, an agricultural level, stuff like that. And he's the he's the God with the flowing waters and the horns coming from his hat. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Enki is. Um, yeah. I know Ptah. The weird thing about him, he's always depicted, or he's mostly depicted with the green skin, for some weird reason. Hmm. Interesting. Is that a connection to Osiris? I think there might be. Um, or how about Peter Parker and the Green Goblin? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, man, crack the code. Archetypes have a funny way of, you know, repeating themselves in our, in our subconscious minds. Yeah. Yeah. But with the story of the celestial bodies, do you, do you know how, how that goes in the, uh, in the, like the Enuma Elish and how they speak of it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm pulling that up for you right now because uh, so The Enuma Elish, and it, that means when in the heights. Um, so it start. That's mm-hmm. those are the those are the opening words. When in the heights, and this story was an epic that actually used to be told at the uh, Babylon New Year festival every year. So it was an ancient tale. By the time the Babylonian kingdom arose, um, and it was already like over a thousand years old by that time, and it was told every year at their New Year festival, and it was acted out like this epic. But the wise knew what the epic was really about. According to Sitchin, it wasn't so much about gods battling. It was about how our solar system came to be. And more specifically, how uh, this this outer stranger planet 
came in and intervened the whole altercation and kind of set things straight and became the protagonist of the story. And that protagonist in the Enuma Elish has changed um, names over the, the course of time through different civilizations. In the Babylonian epic, um, he was known as Marduk because that was their patron god. But in the uh, Sumerian epic, Sitchin claims that he was known as Nibiru. But what I found, and this is uh, one of those nuanced things, uh, one of those nuanced critiques of Sitchin that you know I had to come to realization. Uh, when I, if I actually read the Enuma Elish, and at the end of it, when when that that rogue planet or that rogue protagonist comes in and kind of sets everything straight and kills the antagonist, who we can get into in a little bit, he is uh, praised by 50 different names, which is a significant thing that Sitchin talks about, that each god in the hierarchy, like the, the, the upper echelon of the hierarchy, had like a set of 40, 50, or 60 names, you know, the highest being the 60. But uh, Marduk, or this protagonist in the Enuma Elish at the end, is praised by these 50 different names. And only one of them out of those 50 is Nibiru. So Nibiru is mentioned in that, text and um what it says and i have here a 1942 translation from alexander heidel um so from lines 128 to 133 we read and this is the praising of the protagonist nibiru the star that shines in the skies may he uphold the course of the stars of heaven may he shepherd all the gods like sheep May he subdue Tiamat. May he distress and shorten her life. So in that passage, he's likened to Nibiru, the star that shines in the skies, which is a pretty interesting passage. But again, he's given 49 other titles in this, in this part was being praised. So for Sitchin to go and say, look, his name is Nibiru, it's Nibiru, it's just the planet of the crossing, this, this, and that, is, is uh, definitely stretching the situation. Do you think like Nibiru could be something totally different than a than like a wandering planet? Maybe it could be Polaris or something, because there's a lot of uh, Polaris kind of cosmology stuff going on too. Yeah, I, th I think there's a possibility for that. I mean, it's just strange stuff, you know. And I had a revelation, man, when I was like reading this, because um, man, I mean, this is this is the oldest known cosmological tale in our history, in our entire human history. Mm -hmm. So if you just kind of sit there and let that, you know, sink in, it's very strange, man. It's a very strange thing to think about. Like, what are we being told? You know, what is going on in this tale? You know, and it's also like, it's fascinating just to think about our ancestors thinking about it. You know, it's interesting. It's really cool to think that there's this you know culture that we are you know related to and you know through <laughs> through thousands of years and you know they were talking about the planets and and their their courses and they were studying that and mapping that you know co cosmology is like it's not easy like to to even know or recognize star patterns is something that most people in culture now cannot do and they need massive amounts of training 
and you know there's something to that right that's a, that's a whole that's a whole thing but something that kind of popped to my head uh when you were talking about nibiru and you know it's like it could be a planet you know yes yes and um a lot of times you know astrotheological stories are tied in there man like it's you know it's beautiful to kind of correlate them to things happening in the sky um especially if astrology is real then it gives it a lot of homage um but we've talked to some people and there's like this you know this kind of like this alternative astrological theory that um these planets evolve in their consciousness as well and you know it's like it's like ascension you know like what happened to these cultures right like some apparently maybe they ascended because they got their high vibrational state to a certain point and it's like well maybe if you know these planets are in line in succession to try to grow their vibrational state to have a planetary ascension and you know it's like that's what made me think of you know like Nibiru is leading the gods like sheep it's like well he's he's like the seer or um you know like the heightened shaman of the group or, or something along those lines this is such a trip to think about, man. All this stuff is yeah. incredibly deep. But what's what's your thoughts on um on, on more on Nibiru? Because that's just, that's an interesting rabbit hole, man. Yeah. What, Where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's mentioned once in in the whole of Anuma Elish, and it's at that end part where he's being praised by these fifty names, and we only have, I believe, like the Mar the Babylonian version of it. We don't have like a full on Sumerian version of it, so we only have the version where uh, the protagonist is named Marduk, and so we don't know like what the original protagonist's name was. It was probably Enki, you know, just based on how they do things. They it's always the patron god that's given like these protagonists um you know names uh but it is interesting how he says nibiru like the shepherd in the sky like there's always that shepherd I ideology but to go kind of go back to the uh astral theological thing why the reason why sitchin was looking at this and thought like oh this is obviously about our solar system is because the tale starts with with uh three gods to uh, major gods and a little god. And it starts with Apsu and uh, Tiamat, two major gods, and a little god by the name of Mumu. And um, then Apsu and Tiamat have children. And out of those children, there are uh, three couples that are born. So three pairs of gods. Um, and so that makes six gods in total so and, and those those other those lower gods start to rebel against tiamat and cause like havoc or whatever so that's what the war is that's what the battle is it's tiamat against her children her six children and uh, mumu the little god is kind of consulting with with apsu and apsu and, and mumu are consulting each other and like kind of freaking out like ah oh, this is crazy i don't want my family like killing each other and then a, a bunch of stuff happens and then this other deity out of random um, gets employed by tiamat and his name is kingu and he comes and he, he joins the war and as all this is happening, the protagonist of the story comes in, and that's Marduk in the Babylonian version. He comes in, and as he's passing through um, the line of battle, he, like, interacts with certain of these gods, and certain things happen when he inter interacts with them. Uh, like, for example, he, like, knocks one over or something like that. And and, and so Sitch is looking at this, and he says, hmm, so Apsu, Tiamat, Mumu. 
Okay, that's the sun. That's a, a, a pre-Earth planet named Tiamat and Mercury. Three couples, six to gods. Those are the six other planets in our solar system. And then Kingu, this, this random god that jumps into the story randomly, is the moon. And then the protagonist that comes in and sets everything straight is Nibiru, is this outer planet that came in and literally, well, in the Enuma Elish, he, he literally um, gives the gods their decrees and sets them in their orders. So Sitchin's reading this as this planet came and its gravitational pull set everything into the place that it's in now, that it's been in our modern history. And he's not the first to kind of like make that hypothesis. Like I said, um, cosmological tales, uh, it starts off with that concept. There's a darkness, there's a watery abyss, and then there's this like self-created being. Um, I forgot its name. I have it here somewhere. But that self-created being, one of the first things that it does is create um, air, water, and land. It's like this This is repeated a lot of times. And But to go to your question, is like it's almost like every religion and every age we go through, it's like that needs to be reinstated, um, but with new like characters that are just really masking the actual theological aspect of it. It's, you know, it's always like, like with, with Moses and the Ram and that heavy Ram imagery during Moses's time changes to Jesus and the fish, which is like obviously Rams and Pisces. And then, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting too, how like they, they say that Jesus is um, when he comes back, it's the son. He's like the son of man. They call him the son of man a lot. There's all this like man imagery, and that could be like Aquarius, because Aquarius is the man holding the water. So yeah, I think there's something to that. The age is changing, and, and the imagery changing with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a that's a that's a big big chip to dip there, Dan. <laughs> I saw you reading the book. I saw, you, I saw you pulled out. He pulled out the book over there, dude. Yeah, Damn. the twelfth planet book. There you go. I have the the whole series up there. I just wanted to uh, try to look through it to see if I can, you know, uh, get some perspective. But it's hard because I want to listen to everything Eddie is saying, and then I, I don't want to read. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to read read and listen at the same time. That's a that's a yeah. major multi skill. I, I was just gonna. I was kind of just what about through it to uh, see if I could find anything. I did find this though. Uh, it says the stage of which the celestial drama of the Enuma Elish unfolds is the prime primeval universe. The celestial actors are the ones who create as well as the ones being created. Act one. When in the heights, heaven had not been named and below earth had not been called. Not but primordial Apsu, their begetter. Mumu and Tiamat, she who bore them all, their waters were mingled together. No reed had yet formed, no marshland had appeared, none of the gods had yet been brought into being, none bore a name, their destinies were undetermined, then it was that gods were formed in the midst. And then it it goes on from there, and uh, in the expanse yeah. of space, the gods, the planets are yet to appear, to be named, to have their destinies, their orbits fixed. Only three bodies exist. Primu primordial Apsu, one who exists from the beginning. Mumu, the one who was born. And Tiamat, maiden of life, 
the waters of Apsu and Tiamat were mingled, and the text makes it clear that it does not mean the waters in which reeds grow, but rather the primordial waters, the basic life-giving elements of the universe. Yeah. Yeah, there's something there, man, with this whole water thing. Yeah, so that kind of goes on what you're already talking about. Uh, and that, that's from Sitchin there. Um, but yeah, there's there's a... a the epic of creation came to an end. There was a solar system made up of the sun and nine planets. So it tells you the names of all of them. The sun is Apsu, the one who existed from the beginning. Mercury is Mumu, counselor and emissary of Apsu. Venus is Lahamu, lady of battles. Mars is Lamu, deity of war. Tiamat, woman who gave life. Jupiter is Kishar. Uh, foremost of firm lands and then Saturn is Anshar for, foremost of the heavens Pluto is Gaga Lady Gaga counselor of emissary of Anshar <laughs> uh, Romans Uranus is Anu he of the heavens and mm -hmm. Neptune is Nudimud or EA artful creator. So it's it's a uh, it's also kind of interesting that EA has so many different names and uh, he kind of represents so many different planets too. Neptune being one of them, yeah. and then something seems like later the sun. He's always going to the Absu, which Absu and Absu are kind of very similar. You know? Yeah, yeah, they sound a lot like yeah. Uh some phonetic uh similarities i guess yeah i'm i'm wondering what what so let's let's follow up with the cosmology with the kind of the you know the anunnaki story like how does how does this fold out from this cosmo cosmogenesis here all right so <clears throat> after that tale occurs then uh it just i'm pretty sure it just briefly states that then the gods are formed the gods are formed and that a lot of uh tale <clears throat> tales in the old world follow that theme it's like that battle happens or that weird scene with the watery abyss happens and then shortly after that the elements are created and then right after the elements are created the gods are born like in the egyptian uh story it's it, during that time period of the gods it's uh known as zeptepi time of the gods and then after the time of the gods mankind is created so in the sumerian tales it's the same thing the gods are shortly created after the elements and then they kind of just exist on their own and uh, according to like the, the text they're just building stuff they're just like we talked about they're terraforming the land and um, tending the land and then eventually they get to that point where they find it necessary to create us Yeah, let's get into that story of why creating humans. What what was our goal? What was our necessity? And and their kind of uh, taking over of this planet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just found that that text I was referencing. So the oldest known written record um, is known as the Kesh Temple Hymn written in 2600 bc so uh the kesh temple hymn and all it is is uh 
the, it, uh, talking about the gods building what are called uh, the house of Kek, K-E-C, mm. um, which is, I got a, I got a paraphrase or I got a quote of it here. It says, Enlil, the princely one, came forth from the house, dot, 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 house Kek, platform of the land, important, fierce bowl, um, growing as high as the hills, embracing the heavens, house founded by on so it just like talks about the gods and the building of what's known as the house of kek k-e-c so it's interesting so that's what they decide to do with themselves and then mankind is created and to my understanding there's uh about two or three instances in sumerian tales that talk about our creation and in each of those instances we are created by an admixture of clay and blood so uh, I think the most extensive one is the tale known as Enki and Ninma. And uh, it's decided upon the gods that they need to create us simply to be workers for them, to help them, um, because they're doing all the work, all the labor, and then the lower ranking gods are like, yo, we don't want to do this anymore. So they employ Enki and Ninma and, uh, and other tales, a couple other goddesses to engineer a, a surrogate worker. And in those processes, um, they always add, like add a mixture of clay and like blood of a god and then piece that together. And in, in the Enki and Ninma text, they go through a series of, of deformations. They create like strange creatures that are deformed. I, I don't know, probably like eight or seven of them or something. And then eventually they get to the point where they perfect it and then they create us. And then that creation is subsequently the, you know, the early homo sapiens the Adamu, right? Or the or is it yeah. the Adapu? I can't remember which one is which. Well, I had trouble, you know, coming uh, coming to a conclusion about that because I was I was doing my research because again I was following a lot of what Sitchin said, but uh, there's not a lot of evidence for them actually being called the Adamu. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of a speculation, but uh, you might be talking about Adapa. So Adamu Adapa, and Adapa yeah. are kind of. Are, are similar. Adapa was a specific uh, human that was mentioned a lot in their old tales. He was like, he was kind of like Adam. He was like reminiscent of Adam, but he was like the first intelligent uh, human that they were like proud of. And uh, he, they endowed him with a lot of like strength and intelligence. Excuse me, but Adamu, I try to find like sources for that and it was hard. Like I, I just, so I just left that out, but uh, I forgot what the name of the actual name that is used in the in the tales. Um, I'll try to pull that up here. But uh, yeah, Sitchin tries to use uh, Adamu to like tie it to Adam, and like Adamu in in Hebrew kind of means like um, red person or person of clay. So he like try to like stretch it. And that's one of those things that I'm talking about. He kind of stretches things, but I'm trying to find the actual word. There was an actual word. It's going to take me a little while to look through it, but we can move on for now. <clears throat> okay. Well, I'm, I'm curious about the, um, the Anunnaki in the early part, like pre-human Anunnaki, like what was, uh, what, what is some, uh, some general vibes of what was going on in those those days, those stories there. So pre-human Anunnaki, uh, yeah, a lot of it, 
like a lot of it was just about them doing like just strange agricultural stuff and like building things and uh, just some adventures, like some battles amongst each other. Um, like there, there is actually, there's obviously the Enki and the Enlil bloodlines, but there's a third bloodline, um, the Anzu bloodlines. So there's a guy by the name of Anzu and uh, I believe his father was Alalu, um, mm. or at least it was one of his forefathers was Alalu, and Alalu was actually the the, the king that ruled before An or Anu, and that Anu had to fight Alalu for the throne, and so there was like enmity between An's bloodline and Anzu and Alalu, and and. Um, among that lineage there was also another god by the name of kumarbi so like kumarbi anzu and alalu they were like this whole other family that kind of like beefed with anu with on but then of course one once on became the king he had his sons and then there was like a whole beef between his sons the enki and the enlils but in the background there's probably still some of that anzu bloodline going on and, and happening matter of fact i think uh I think one of Alalu's uh, like daughters eventually mixed with Enlil's somewhere down the line. But just a whole bunch of just a whole bunch yeah, of beef, dude. Enlil, uh, Alalu is like the brother of Anu or something, right? Well, he's known as he was he was a king before uh, before Anu, and then Anu was his cupbearer. I haven't come across anything mentioning them as brothers, but they were definitely Anu was definitely his cupbearer or his assistant, and there was like tension, and and Anu um, mm. basically battled him for the throne and and won. What kind of cup? <laughs> right, <laughs> his, his pimp, his pimp cup, dude. No, I'm serious, man. Because when you're talking about clay and blood earlier, I'm mm. I'm wondering if this is like an allegory to alluding to something else you know like yeah. is this is this proverbial blood and proverbial clay you know like is the clay a pot and then the clay is cracked or something like thrown in the fire because you can take a fish and and dip it in clay and then you throw it on the fire and when it's cracked the fish is like done cooking on the inside so i don't know clay's clay's cool or, or it could be like formation of planets or something i don't know uh but does anzu is that is there any references to the color blue with Alulu or uh, Alula? I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And Anzu, they kind of give me um, some blue color vibes. I'm wondering if, the, if there's any color correlation between these gods. Um, not not that I've come across, but lapis lazuli was like their precious stone, mm -hmm. you know, which was blue. Yeah. I was thinking Azurite. Azurite is a really cool blue stone I, I like, and Lapis Lazuli were the two ones that came. And I was like, Anzu and Lalula. I was like, oh, maybe some blue ocean? I don't know. Mystical blue vibes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mystical blue vibes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Man. Still looking? Yeah, I'm still, like, looking through my notes for that word. Uh yeah, but uh, yeah, man, and no, it's interesting stuff, dude. And uh, so doing my research for this book, I kind of had to dive into like just Sumerian history, and it's very, it's really fascinating stuff, man. Because it's like they were, they they were actually never like, like a like a strong kingdom, 
You know, I, reading Sitchin stuff, I always like imagine the Sumerians to be like a strong, fortified kingdom, but they were actually always throughout their entire history a warring city-state kingdom. So there was never like a full, like like lengthy period of time where they were like a unified kingdom. They were always warring city-states, and each city-state had its patron god. And their their entire history—it's a fascinating thing, man. Their entire history is just freaking war after war, battle after battle. Like it's a chess, it's like a chess game. If you read it, you know it's just like this city attacks this city. It's it's kind of actually like gang shit, to be honest. It's like it's a bunch of gangs, dude, just beefing on each other and just like running up on each other. You know. When and, did it level out? Well, uh, when Sargon of Akkad came through, you know, big thugging. You know, he came through Sarg- Sargon of Akkad came and uh, took advantage of that. He took advantage of, of, of them always warring with each other and uh, swooped everything. But what's interesting that I found is that when, once he swooped everything and took over Sumer and, and the uh, other areas, he, he actually instituted, I, I believe, his niece, his niece or his daughter um, as the head priestess of the temple of Ur, which was like the main capital of Sumer. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, Sargon and that niece or, or daughter, which I can find in a second here, um, her name was Enhet Duana, and uh, she worshipped Inanna. And we actually still have writings of Enhet Duana appraising Inanna. And so, so it's like, again, it's like this chess game. And, and each kingdom or each city-state was like making their moves justifiable by their God. So when Sargon took over, it, they did all that like under Inanna. Does the town of Or is that is that spelled like like the rock or the mineral? Is that is that what that's named after? Do you know that caught my no? Attention. It's a Ur as in like you are. Uh, okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Urgat. Urgat. Something like that. Yeah. Urgak. Might be where Urak came from. No, yeah, that's what that's what uh, Sitchin says. Well, there's Ur and then there's there's Urek or Iraq, which mm-hmm. is like I like got he says like that's Iraq, Urek, Iraq. But no, I mean Sumer is uh what or is modern day Iraq. I so or I should, yeah, Iraq is where Sumer used to be, which is pretty wild. I thought yeah, that was man. Babylon. Uh it's there too. Oh, yeah, well, Babylon, it's all, it's all like right there, yeah. Mes- but with Sumer. Mes- Mesopotamia. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, Saddam was trying to rebuild the uh, gardens of Babylon. Yeah, dude, I get into that in the book, actually. I'm working on the fourth chapter, which is, it's called The Cover-Up. And I kind of just like show how like, the influence of the Anunnaki still existed like after all these thousands of years and kind of like how or why it is that there's their presence was covered up um, through monotheism. But I, I dived a little bit into Saddam. He was a, a crazy dude, man. But yeah, he was, he was legit trying to reinstate Babylon. Like that was like a goal of his, like that he would talk about, like, you know, we must reinvigorate, babylon and and all this craziness is is that kind of like i mean i'm mean to get to like you know off topic here but i haven't looked into saddam at all 
and I'm actually kind of curious and when I'm getting a little bit of like, I'm not, now I don't want to offend anybody by saying this, but you know, like somebody running a, a, a country or being a leader and then having some occult ties, you know, reminds me of Hitler a little bit like that. Cause you know, they were trying to revive some sort of like old occultic uh, text and, you know, esoteric in the sense of like looking for like old ancient uh, hidden information and is that kind of is that similar at all or what do you do you, how how far did you dig into this this guy uh not not too far but i have researched him over the years because he's just a wild dude and um i know a little bit like i know he got into power i forgot the name of it but there was a group uh like a militia group that was like anti anti-state at the time it, it's always like that it always starts that way it's always like this anti-state group that's against the, the the government and then throws a coup and then becomes the new state but he was mm. a part he, he was a part of a very famous anti-state group at that time forgot the name of it but it was a political party that that he started to head and he, he threw over the government and then he became the dictator of the government but uh no he was wild i mean at the very least he there was a lot of propaganda again like with the nazis and stuff there, there was mm -hmm. there was propaganda coming out that was kind of like showing him side by side and you could still see some of this stuff which is like crazy it would show him side by side with like reliefs of like with like uh certain like babylonian rulers like nebuchadnezzar and shit so like what? yeah trip so out dude yeah, so he would try to liken himself to the old Babylonian kings because that was those were his ancestors. So he was like, "We're Babylon the Great. Like we need to come back." Yo, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I'm gonna have to do at least some sort of dig dive. I, I dug into Castro a little bit. Castro was a cool cat, and he was practicing voodoo. Like he was uh, full on practicing voodoo, and he trained birds to come around his podium uh because like of like per, for protection and stuff so you know i love you know most of these like definitely not americans leaders no way are they tied to any sort of occult practices but when you look at these other ones they definitely are you know regionally of course uh but uh, um i'm curious about your perspective and opinion on uh on, on the on i guess on like the human genesis story coming from the Anunnaki perspective, like how high tech do you think the genetic manipulation was, or, you know, was it, was it, what, what's, what's just your opinion on, on that? Yeah, yeah. Like, are, are we genetically manipulated slaves to mine gold for these uh, gods that came here? Was Nibiru a spaceship and not a planet, you know, or something like, what, what do you got? What, what do you think, man? Yeah. After all the years, as of right now, what makes sense to me is I, th I think that there was a cataclysm that occurred at some point in our recent history, maybe 40,000 years ago, something. So I think something huge happened within the span of 100,000 um, to, to you know, 40,000 years ago or 40,000 years to 100,000 years ago, better way to say it. I think something huge happened within that time frame, and that uh, prior to that happening, or right as the or right as it happened around when it happened, I think there was already civilization, you know, uh, similar to similar to what we know um, as far as the ancient world. I mean, 
And the reason being is because, you know, we have we have some of the oldest texts coming from Sumer, but we have things like Gobekli Tepe going back thousands of years before that. So there was obviously civilization, you know, before what mainstream calls history. So I think that there was civilization, you know, prior to prior to our, our known history. And to what how advanced it was, I don't know. I, you know, we can make guesses, but I think something huge happened. And after that happened, only a few people survived. And um, I'm not sure how they survived. That's a whole nother speculation thing. But I think that a lot of the people that survived later on became what we would call the gods. I think that all the gods, um, they were just, they were earth beings. They were earth, you know, they're humans. They were people that convinced the other nomad tribes that like had that amnesia that they were gods and just kind of like duped them into believing that so that they could do their bidding. Cargo cult like, style. Yeah. What is that? Argo cult? Cargo. Oh, cargo cult. Like you've heard about those tribes in like uh, the third world countries when we fly their our planes over there and drop food for them, then they build like plane uh, statues and stuff like, hey, come back, give us more food again. And then they start worshiping the planes and the people that are bringing them the food. I, I th I'm wondering about the like. My mind automatically goes to like uh, electromagnetic anomalies, you know, magnetic anomalies with like ley lines and sacred sites being, you know, having those kinds of concurrences. And if you wanted to like show show skills in a way you know like like bringing food or water or showing agriculture but what about showing the power of uh of like consciousness changing if you knew where to take like a group of people to have an out-of-body experience or to have like some sort of magnetic experience uh, uh yeah is is there any is gobekli tepe has to be it definitely has to be on a magnetic ley line right do you guys know I don't. Me neither. I'm, I'm not sure if it is, is or not, is. but I'm guessing it probably, probably. is. Most temples yeah. and everything were built on these ley lines. So, which just means that that like just you know the Geiger count. What was the Geiger counter of the back in the day? It was a dowsing rod, right? Like they to go find the radiation or the uh, the magnetics they would they would hold like the divining rod or the dowsing rod and it would water. Spin, and that was just a yeah it, mm. yeah water and sometimes it would just point down it would start spinning over on top of mines like mineral mines which is mm. nuts which reminds me you know of the anunnaki story of like mining for gold um yeah but i'm curious how high tech the sitchin say that they are in his stories like i i like i said i don't know any sitchin at all which yeah. is kind of kind of ashamed a little bit don't you know, <laughs> it's, now it's public but uh but yeah how high tech were were the anunnaki in his stories uh well that's actually kind of cool man to like have a fresh mind and not you know be biased from a sitchin point uh point of view Cause it's like kind of, it's actually kind of rare for me to come across somebody that, that doesn't like know some of it, you know, but it's, it's refreshing. But, um, I mean, he, he was like fully, you know, full fledged believed that they were from another planet and that they were advanced mm. by like, um, I think like a million years. Um, he believed that 
yeah, he believed they had rockets. Um, but it's kind of interesting. One of his detractors made an interesting point that a lot of what Sitchin attributed to them was kind of like the science of his day. Mm. He, did, he never really went really past the science of his day. He never really talked about like them having portals or like like uh, light speed, like time warping things. He just talked about like very like logical things like, oh, yeah, they're, they're from this planet that orbits our solar system every 3,600 years. And um, before it enters our vicinity, they leave it right on their rockets. And then that, that's how they travel here easily. It's not from like portals and stuff. They leave the planet before it reaches our vicinity, land here, kick it. And then as their planet is exiting our solar system, they leave and catch up with it. And so that whole process of them dipping, coming here, then leaving, uh, it takes about, it's like, I don't know, like 400 years or something. So he, he um, shows you like these very specific epics in human history when they came here. And he shows you like, this, this is when they came here and this is when they left. This is when they came back and this is when they left. So that's what he says. He says they were pretty much just an advanced. They, they were nothing more crazier than what we are today. Basically to answer your question, they, they weren't far off technologically than we are today. No, that's yeah. That's, that's kind of crazy. I mean, it, I have to read it now just to kind of like catch the perspective of like, yeah, of this, of this guy. I mean, he's, he wasn't the first person to decode though. Right. He was like the fifth or something like that. No, he well, was the first. Uh, he was. Yeah. Well, him and uh, Eric Von Daniken were like pretty, pretty close in, in time with, with their stuff. But Sitchin was very famous or he was the, the pioneer in like the specifically Anunnaki stuff. He's the one who like came with the Anunnaki stuff. Von Daniken had chariots of the gods, pretty much saying the same stuff, but not not as detailed and specific. He was just kind of like, look at all this crazy stuff. It had to be astronauts from space. Whereas Sitchin went like went like deep, deep, deep into it. And that's why I like his work. He's very detailed uh, with his stuff. And the epic of Gilgamesh, which is a Sumerian text too, that that came afterwards, right? It was discovered afterwards, or was it at the same time? It was just later decoded. Um, discover it was discovered, uh, I believe. Well, all of it was pretty much rediscovered in the 1800s. And I talk about the process of translation in the book, which was an interesting thing for me to read. Um, so all of it became available to us because of what is known as the Behistun um, inscription. And, uh, damn, where is it? So the Behistun inscription uh, is a trilingual, trilingual text made by King Darius in the round 500 uh, BC in Eastern Iran. And it was a trilingual text which comprised of Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite. And I'm kind of laughing here because I just saw this funny meme the other day where it was like, she always thinks it's a side girl, but it really be a uh, tri trilingual text from um, Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite. <laughs> and it's just some dude like pondering. <laughs> that shit was just like rang truer than true for me yeah wow that's too. super specific and hilarious that's, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. yeah 
but uh yeah so so that trilingual text it was it's kind of like a rosetta stone it's like a miracle i mean we got to be like forever grateful for king darius doing for doing that so it was old persian babylonian elamite and but each of them in that text which is him like saying yo i conquered these lands or whatever they're all written in cuneiform so cuneiform is a is a type of font it's a type of script it's not a language so all of those languages were written in the cuneiform style so from that behistun inscription a lot of scholars got on the scene and then slowly started to to crack those codes. And once they cracked those codes, because if it was a, a Rosetta Stone, they could use modern languages attributed to those. Eventually, they got to the point where they could start to crack the the Sumerian and and the Akkadian. And uh, the, there was about three scholars who did that. Um, they're they're known as basically the the fathers of Sumerology. And um, they were, one of them was Henry Rawlinson, um, Edward Hinks, and uh, George Grottenfend. It's an interesting story, though, because uh, I forgot which one it is. I think it's Rawlinson. One of them, I think it's Rawlinson. He kind of just like piggybacked off them and kind of like, he was kind of charlatan about it. And uh, kind of just stole some of their some of their translations, but there was a huge congregation of academia at that time. I, I forgot what it was, but pretty much all the the brainiacs and the, and the leaders of the institutions got these three guys together, and then challenged them. They gave them a certain inscription, and they had to they had to come to their own translation independently of each other, under a certain amount of time, and and then after that, from that point forward, academia accepted their translations and said okay well you guys pretty much all came to a, a similar translation so we can now trust that this is sumerian so from it was just from that incident alone we were like all right well you guys all came to similar conclusions and this this must be sumerian all right let's rock with it so from that point forward what we call sumerian what we've been translating as sumerian has been based off of the work of those three guys and what they uh were able to translate Interesting. And then, so where does Sitchin fit into that? He, he came after them? Yes, yes. So this was in the 1800s. Sitchin was born like the 1900s, like early, early 1900s. And then uh, he published his first book in the 70s. So Sitchin was way after. Sitchin wasn't a real Assyriologist. You know, some people like out there be like, oh, he was an Assyriologist, this and that. No, he wasn't a real Assyriologist. He, he wasn't really much of a real academian either. You know, he was, I like to call him a speculative uh, Assyriologist because a lot of what he wrote was speculative. A super fascinating author and scholar. I mean, we could definitely call him a scholar because he went out there and he saw this stuff for himself and he definitely took a crack at some translations or at least he claims that he did. But he actually took a, a lot of the work that had already been done. There had already, there had already been a hundred years, about a hundred years of translations done um, from which he could source. So he was taking all the translations, and which is actually 
cool because that actually adds veracity to him because a lot of his detractors say oh he's making this up no he's not if you if you go and look at his index we look at look at his bibliography or even in in the paragraphs he'll give you a lot of the times the, the citations and the sources from which he's pulling his information from from which he's pulling his translations from which come from all those actual pioneering assyriologists that did that did the the footwork for all of us nice yeah but he got fame he got famous for it and so people will always have some sort of clout you know they'll have some you know and now you'll get tied into the uh the ancient aliens show and so now everyone's gonna write it off completely but they shouldn't they, you know they should they should at least respect the fact that you know somebody was doing something i mean there's yeah. grains of truth sprinkled throughout everything man and uh what what do they date the text to like the time period yeah uh well the the oldest go back to like the third millennium bc okay and that yeah so we know so i'm wanting just like even that story is probably watered down from the, the story of like the translations yeah, you know, we're just like the story because, like you said, we had to go Beckley Tepley, right? Which we date back to even further, you know, maybe even potentially a thousand years. And it's like, wow, well, you know, by the time that they figured out cuneiform tablets and everything, you know, like the story must have must have altered so much, even oh, yeah. even by then, you know. So it's just that that's the alone is even a trip. We're just like, <laughs> shit. We need older. Yeah, the earth. The earth is the tablet, man. For real, for real. Yeah, man. There's there's so much lost, man. There's so much lost and so much more to find. And uh it's said out there, you know, if you if you go out there and you try to find statistics, which I did for the book, it's basically concluded that only 10% of all the tablets we've found since we've rediscovered them have been um publicly translated hmm. and we've found hundreds of thousands some some statistics even estimate it's in the million wow dude i i can tell you guys a story i heard today it's a little uh a little off topic but yeah, not, yeah. but but also not really uh so I was talking to a good buddy who's going to come down and visit soon. And he was telling me about this, this guy who's from the Bay area, which is around where we're from. And he's a surfer. And when he was younger, he, he went out to Asia and like Thailand to go surf. And while he, him and his buddies were there, they were out hiking and they went off the beaten path and they found a cave. And inside that cave, they found a literal case full of gold bars that were marked they were marked gold bars and uh they were in thailand and they went to the american embassy and the american embassy threw them in jail and said and started interrogating them where did you find these you know start, started basically saying like tell us where you found them where are the rest of them you know give us the gold basically right and this was i mean 20 20 years ago it's about yeah. 100 150 million dollars worth of oh, gold man. bars that they found and they eventually uh actually ended up taking the u.s to court uh and winning and they won and you know they didn't get the gold but they got a settlement 
and you know then that guy now lives in in redding california and what i told my friend was i was like dude it's a bit synchronistic that this guy lives in redding california which is like gold mine central central northern california and then he went to thailand you know and found a chest full of gold in a mind i was like there's like that golden mine kind of like yeah. synchronicity you know but it's like wow that was 20 years ago you know and I, you were just talking about these texts being found and deciphered and you know like just it just kind of gives me a little bit of hope to like go off the beaten path and and uh you know, live life on the motherfucking edge because who knows? You might find a, a, a whole case full of uh, gold bars, or you might find some text, some cuneiform text. Hell yeah, dude! I was gonna say <laughs> you it, might it, find that. No, I was just saying you might find that trilingual text, man. <laughs> yes, you know? if they found possibly millions of tablets, then what does that do to like? the story kind of because they say you know that they wrote it down because it was super important but if there's millions of them then does that take away some of the importance of of what they're actually trying to convey and maybe were they just writing stories or is it actual history that they're putting onto these tablets because it, it when you get into that many it seems like maybe either they're reproducing the story for everybody to have or they're just writers <laughs> yeah they were definitely writers though that's for sure i mean a lot of the texts that we have are actually just like boring daily life things oh um, really because they would write yeah they would write down like just transactions and just oh, okay. stuff like that so a lot of it is probably boring stuff but there could be truth to that you know it, it might um you know debunk some of uh what we have or there might they might be hiding stuff that might even just be crazier than that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this, man. What if, what have you found? Uh, what if you found that is your spin on all of this? Interesting question. That's a great question. Um, man, what have I found? Sorry. Getting nervous here. <laughs> no, <laughs> No, but like legit, like my brain is like fried, like overload with information because I've been doing so much research for weeks and weeks. But so I'm just like digging through everything, man. What I've, I've come across a lot of interesting, unique things in my research that, you know, nobody else that I, nobody else mentioned to me. But then again, everything that I find is, is, is in my work. So it's coming from somebody somewhere, you know, but a lot of my personal uh, unique thoughts come from my experience, my experiences, and just my speculation. You know, because I've, I've I haven't been privileged to be to go out there and do like real, you know, boots on the ground uh, excavations and stuff like that. I mean, that'd be tight. But I've come across unique pieces of information that you know people in our community um, haven't heard before. You know, and that's I kind of strive to do that. Uh, for myself too, because I have, I got so many questions that I'm just obsessed with wanting to find answers to, but out of everything that I've pretty much 
uh, research up to this point, lately I've been coming to the conclusion that, uh, for one, when it comes to the Anunnaki, for, this just rings truth with me. It's just it's kind of what I explained earlier. I think that they were just people from here that, you know, played themselves up as gods. Um, but I'm also realizing that when it comes to a lot of the spiritual dogma of things, uh, a lot of it's just archetypes built onto archetypes. Like, for example, I just dropped uh, a documentary on, on Toth. And this one's I spent like three weeks putting together. And this was a, a, a huge one for me. Like it was a, a game changer for me. Like I learned so much in that process. And this is why I love doing documentaries and books because I personally learned a whole bunch too. I'm, I'm learning with you guys when I drop these things, you know, um, because it's my goal with my brand and with, with my work to, when I present a subject to present like everything you need to know in, in as brief way as I can, because I want to put these things to rest. That's kind of what I'm doing. I'm trying, I'm trying to get us to move forward, you know, instead of kind of stagnating, you know, and I've been researching this stuff for 15 years. So I feel like now that the accumulation of research is, is I'm finally just chopping it down. I'm finally giving my conclusion to these subjects so that we can move forward and say, what do we do with ourselves now? Now that we know this is true, now that we know the history of that, let's go forward. So when I did the Toth thing, I, I finally realized that it was just all archetypes built onto archetypes. You know, Toth was an archetype um, that was added onto the Hermes Trismegistus archetype, um, which was even further adopted into a, a quasi Jesus Christ figure in early Christianity, and then was adopted into Enoch and even the Islamic Enoch Idris. So it's just like these amalgamation of archetypes. So um, what I'm, to be honest, like, I mean, I do a lot of historical work and research, but personally, I'm more of like a, a Jungian type of, of person in the way that I personally view things. Archetypes are huge, man. Jungian, uh, like Carl you know. Jung? Yeah. Okay. I, I thought the father you meant like a rookie. Could like young youngster. <laughs> a youngster. Carl Young. Carl Youngster. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, but I mean like, Actually, like that's that's cool. Oh, that's pretty fire, huh? Carl Youngster. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to do a documentary on uh the the Jungian archetypes at any point i probably will man because uh young he comes comes across my desk a lot whenever i'm re researching something yeah. his name is always popping up in places that i wouldn't even imagine to be honest like mm -hmm. i'm like what the hell like i always tripped out when i found a book um that he did on ufos a while back <laughs> that was a big surprise i was like damn this dude's in everything <laughs> he he's a really og i mean honestly like he like there he changed he changed the game uh in a lot of, in a lot of ways and because the archetypes um anytime you get an ian like like you know a young ian like an ian attached to the last of your name you know you did fucking well in your work and yeah, yeah, yeah. in your life you know <laughs> um but the archetypes are really interesting and it'd be kind of cool to talk about some of the Sumerian archetypes that maybe are repeated in Egypt and uh, some of the major archetypes that are in the Sumerian uh, um, paradigms here. Well, yeah, man. let me first ask you, like, where do you think these archetypes maybe come from? 
Like, what is the origin of these mm. archetypes? Celestial. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a lot of it is nature, you know, celestial nature, earthly nature. Um, it seems like that's kind of where it all started on a basic level. But to be conspiratorial with it, you know, there could have been real altercations with with beings in our past. You know, um, like Credo Mutwa would say that the reptilians were real and that, but Credo Mutwa has an interesting point of view where he says that the reptilians were, or are our brother and sisters, that they were born of this earth as well. And that they've just tricked mm -hmm. us into believing that they're extraterrestrials. <laughs> but, you know, but because we're compatible with them, we're sexually compatible with them, according mm -hmm. to him. So he's like, that tells you everything you need to know. They were born from here. They just have a different uh, evolutionary body, you know. But um, so I, and so, but uh, somebody brought it up to me the other day. It's like, what if this whole reptilian thing is just a primal, trauma that we have when we encounter dinosaurs or like bipedal dinosaurs more specifically you know so i feel like a, again going back to the whole youngian thing I, I feel like a lot of it uh are archetypes that are just deeply embedded in us as humans in our collective subconscious that first started off as nature as as a natural phenomenon but i'm not going to completely rule out that there were beings or these gods or whatever at some point in time what came first the consciousness or the or the form definitely the consciousness nice yeah for sure <laughs> you gotta think it to believe it man yeah and that's what all these cosmological tales say in my first chapter of the new book i kind of go over that i, I show this the parallels in this this watery abyss scene it's like a lot of the ancient world cosmological tales talk about that and it always talks about this primeval one it's like you know there was the one in the watery abyss and then it like self-realized itself and then after that everything else came so it's almost like the big bang that they try to push on us was the moment that that first consciousness realize itself and then bam it's almost like that duality aspect of 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 god seeing himself in the waters of the primordial waters is kind of the same aspect of of what you see in like these monuments that are erected with the pools in front of them and you see the reflection of those in it also it's like yeah. it's like telling you that it's uh divine or something yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the Toth documentary that I just dropped, there's this dude by the name of Lactantius, and he was actually uh, an early, you know, church father or whatever. <laughs> it's a hot name, dude. Uh, right? Lactantius. Lactantius. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, was lactating. Yo, yo, uh, Lactantius. What's up, my brother? Uh, but uh, he was. Uh, an advisor to Constantine the first man, super important guy, but he was the first ever uh, to associate Christian ideals with the Hermetica, the first to project Christian ideals onto the Hermetica. And there's a Hermetic text um, that talks about the creator producing an emanation of itself. So a fractal of itself in the form of a, of a spiritual being. And at that being's purpose is to perceive itself and in that hermetic text 
the creator says that he loves this being as if it was his own son. So Lactantius, mm -hmm. he was a Greek, I believe, to begin with, converted to Christianity during the Constantinian dynasty. So he's reading this, kind of freaking out, saying like, whoa, like this is a, a pre predecessor to Christianity, to Christ, you know? And there was a, a line of thinking in the Hermetic uh, field that, uh, God had always been dropping truth bombs, or God had always been or had always been revealing truth subtly to the world, prepping us for for the the grand revelation of Jesus Christ. So it was kind of a cop out, though, in a way, like for the early Christianities to look at all the similarities in the pagan world, and they came up with this idea, which which was later known as Prisca Theologia. Uh, in the medieval age, which basically says that, oh, all these similarities in the pagan world from thousands of years before was God actually dropping subtle truths, preparing us for what would become the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, just, I, I don't even know what to say because uh, there, there's a lot of great things, and I, I want to dig more into the the hermetic text side of things and uh this the, the specific text that you're referencing that he read where it talks about god manifesting itself what do you, do you have the reference for that do you know which which text it was i don't know that text i just know i don't even know if it still exists i just know that there that lactantius is uh you know talking of it still exists for sure yeah Super cool man looking at that story. Um, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't God want to, you know, give us, you know, some sort of signs to the people who are at least listening and watching? It's almost like, you know, to be initiated, there's like massive amounts of symbols and imagery and at least like the, the gift of um, observation to be able to look at the sky and to be able to to know what type of celestial events are happening. I mean, yet again, back to what I said in the very beginning, like studying co the cosmos is, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like it's incredible. And that, that could be a representation of, you know, the, of what God is trying to like tell us like via sign wise, like, and it is, I mean, a lot of times that's the case when you start talking to your, your, your astrologer friends and they tell you, you know, like, Hey, this month could be this specific type of month, you know, uh, for you, if you decide you want to travel, like seriously look out for this thing. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I don't know, I, I'm going on tangent here, but you, yeah, man, hermet, hermetic text all day. If you want to have revelations for sure like you want to go deep on some some philosophical thought read some old old, yeah, old good old and old tablets put that put that on a shirt man hermetic text all day for sure <laughs> hermeticism all day <laughs> for sure for sure for sure yeah, man. yeah yeah no my my girl she's uh she's a bit of an astrologer too she'll she'll usually tell me like hey you know, this this time of the month is things are going to be crazy, and that's when I'm like, oh, she's on her period again. Yeah, getting good over there, bro. 
horrible. Uh, That's horrible, I, I Eddie. Feel like, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like I asked a question and then Dan said, wait, let yeah, me ask yeah, yeah. this one. And then we never got to the question, but I forgot what I asked. Um, what are the archetypes of uh, the Anunnaki yes. and the other other gods in Egypt and, and, and yeah, and how, how they blend. Cause I, uh, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, so of course we've got like on, he's an interesting one, right? He's always represented he, well, in Sumerian. He's represented as a star and, but on means sky. And it's interesting how like a lot of the early pantheons, the, the sky was always regarded as like important and uh, there's this whole weird thing with like Zeus. So Zeus it was a later fortified version of like a of a uh, Indo-European word um, known as uh, I forgot the word, but but basically Zeus came from like Zeus and Dios, right? Like Dios, God, or Deus, and in like in like Greek or whatever, Zeus, Deus, Deus, all came from a, a Indo-European word, which also meant like sky. But like Dios Pater or Jupiter, yeah. mean sky, well, well, it means sky father. So like Jupiter, Dios Pater, Zeus Pater, all comes back to an Indo-European word, which means sky father. And so it's interesting how like all these later renditions of the sky, sky father, and where we have the first God of all time, An, whose name literally means sky or heaven, the heaven. So that one's a, a trip. That's a big one, for sure. Yeah. So it's almost like, damn, are they talking about on? Are they, are they just straight up saying Anu at that point, like unknowingly? Or, or are they really just referencing the sky? Switch it on, man. Switch it. Switch it to the sky. Flip it up. Uh, what, about, what about Mercury? What about the Hermes archetype? Who, who's that in Sumeria? Uh, well... <clears throat> I haven't dug too much into that one, but Sitchin always said it was Ningesida, uh, which I guess means he of the tree of life. And uh, in some texts, he's like Anki's son. Um, in other texts, he's he's just like a free agent. I don't know, but he's definitely mentioned in some important texts, like the Adapa tale. So when Adapa Adapa like does some crazy thing, he he breaks what is known the South Wind. And Sitchin says it's like an it's like a rocket ship or an airplane, and he like breaks it. But in the actual text, if you read it, um, the south wind is a bird. It's the, they call it like the, the or the east wind or the south wind, one of those. But it's a it's a huge mythological bird. Adapa breaks its wing, and and so the gods are mad. So he needs to be sent to go see on so that they can question about this. And he's uh, escorted to On's abode by two gods, Demuzi and Ningesita. And uh, so Ningesita has always been like this kind of background character um, who's kind of like mystical, knowledgeable, seems like intelligent. And so a lot of times he's coupled with, with Mercury or Toth. Nice. He's usually nice. the one doing there. the resurrections too. I think it's, it's only it, him that can resurrect people, right? In Sumerian? Yeah. Possibly, yeah. I, I haven't dug too deep into him, but you could be right. Hmm. And uh, o o Osiris is kind of, uh, it's not on, but who would Osiris be in that? Uh, does that bleed over? 
Yeah, it definitely does. I think, well, it's, it's, we can definitely find correlations, but I think a lot of times it's like, there aren't like, they aren't like just taking a Sumerian God and then just being like, okay, well, let's, let's call him this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That definitely like has happened, uh, you know, to a degree, but a lot of times they're like adding to it and, and it's more or less they're taking parts of the stories and then adding it to their God. So uh, you can find similarities in, in, in multiple Sumerian gods mm-hmm. in one Egyptian God. You see, and that happens time and time again. I mean, it goes back to the archetype thing. But as far as Osiris resurrecting God, dying, I think a lot of times he's he's uh, correlated with Demuzi, and Demuzi was uh, one of Inanna's or Ishtar's um, lovers, and uh, he like died, and she got super. She cried about it, went crazy about it, and like tried to resurrect him. So Demuzi was like the first in in ancient times to have to be that like dying and resurrecting kind of god. Mm. Yeah, and, and that his, has his wife parallels to uh, Jesus and Balder also. Yeah, because Demuzi is known as the shepherd too, yeah. which is weird. That that definitely has Osiris vibes in because he's a he was a shepherd or the great pharaoh. But what about the the wife, the Isis character in the Sumerian? If that is is that is she play significant role? And I was actually going to ask too about um, matriarchal situations in Sumeria. Like I, I hear a lot about Enki and Lil, and you know I don't hear a lot about uh, deities, uh, female deities or divine feminine deities. Oh yeah, there was a lot of them, and uh, oh, played cool. like important roles for sure. Like the creation of mankind was was Enki and Ninma. It was it was both uh, both of them creating us. So Ninma comes up a lot uh, in Ninharsag, and I think it was actually uh, a goddess that created beer. It was a uh, Nin Ninkasi. Oh, nice! Like yeah, the brewery, Nin- nice. Yeah, yeah, Ninkasi, man. Shout out to her. <laughs> <laughs> but uh nah man there there was the the divine feminine was there like when sargon of akkad when he like when he took over sumer as i mentioned earlier he instituted his niece or, or daughter and had as the high priestess of ur he's like yo this is all yours you can have it and she initiated that entire temple to inanna so inanna and ishtar who was probably isis also uh uh has played a huge role in the ancient world. Uh, the Assyrians, like, pre- like primarily worshipped Inanna. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I was, I was hoping that was the case, man. You know, not one of another of these just extremely patriarchal uh, <laughs> origin stories. You know what I mean? All these matriarchal uh, feminine aspect goddesses, they all have like mother type attributes though they all have like birthing type attributes associated with them also they're like usually the yeah. the great mother or something like that in all of them yeah but with, with the they're awesome yeah with anana though anana she was uh i think the great granddaughter of anu but she was like she was definitely like a, not a mother you know uh archetype she was like mm-hmm. a, a a warrior goddess archetype you know she's kind of like where the whole venus thing came from like the whole just like badass like warrior type of woman archetype came from 
And then that would that would be uh, Aphrodite. Is that Aphrodite also? Yeah. 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 She was like just a like a sexy, crazy <laughs> lady, man. <laughs> like that's how she was remembered, dude. You know, sometimes I trip and I'm like, man, what if like Kim Kardashian was like a like a reincarnation of her or some shit, you know? <laughs> well, harlot. <laughs> Because they kind of look alike. If you look at some of like the the statues of her and shit, like because uh, I mean they're what they're they're Persian, right? The Kardashians and shit. I think so. Like, yeah. Persians, I, Iran. I, that Persians are from Iran. Iran's right there. You know, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I trip, man. He's about it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah dude, sometimes, yeah. sometimes I trip. Like I'll, I'll be looking at like celebrities and all that stuff. I'm like, man, what if they're just all reincarnated like pharaohs and kings and shit? And that's yeah. They're celebrities. Yeah. Right you know, I was tripping out. I was tripping out the other day on this like uh, little synchro that happened during my uh, my entertainment hours when I allow myself to indulge upon entertainment on the the black screen there. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm watching this show called The Expanse, which I found oh, I heard about it a while ago, but I heard uh, um I, I saw it through, I was watching this other show called Andromeda Strain, which is about like this deep underground uh, military basement or <laughs> bunker that is doing some research on an alien bacteria, right? And that was, um, and then so, somebody was talking about Westworld and I was like, oh shit, Westworld. And so I looked, I looked that up. That's written by John Crick, Crichton, the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. Uh, he directed and wrote Westworld as a movie in 1973. But he also wrote the book uh, Andromeda Strain. That was his first book. And so I was like, oh, holy shit. And uh, and then I'm watching The Expanse, which was... It all connected in because my roommate was like talking about Westworld. And I was like, you son of a bitch. Like, I'm watching this show that was apparently off of like his written from a guy that was off his first book. Anyways, point I'm getting at here is, you know, he had he had a medical degree. So when he wrote Andromeda Strain, he was coming from a medical background. When he wrote Jurassic Park, he was coming from a medical background. When he wrote Westworld, he's coming from a medical background, medical and science. And, you know, it all has to do with some sort of genetic manipulation, some sort of genetic manipulation. And so when we're talking about celebrities having these, uh, you know, these specific type of like genes that are like look like they're like ancient, you know, you're like, wow, like th these have like the same characteristics. You never know because they could be growing these people in a lab somewhere using genetics that they have harvested from some ancient digs that they never told us about or these like families have these you know excrements from like thousands of years ago and keeping the bloodline going you know it's all possible because there's so much suppression when it comes to the massive amount of history that we have you know we have to dig so hard just to even find you know the the remnants of what we can consider reality or truth and so just you know on a deep conspiratorial level i really do think that there is a lab somewhere and i think there's a farm um where they can just keep the wealth generated within a specific family and have it kind of like in a some sort of pyramid scheme set up like that you know obama looks like Akhenaten. yeah <laughs> yeah that's, that's a classic one right there yeah. dude yeah he totally does though <laughs> Yeah, no, I remember coming across that one, dude. That was like that was like 20, 20 uh, 
2016 golden era right there. <laughs> <laughs> Obama is our golden mind. era. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when you think about it too, we call them uh, stars, right? We call them stars. So, uh, I mean, maybe they are like these archetypes of ancient past memories or, or whatnot. And they play characters, they play roles, they act out plays, which is kind of the same thing that they're doing in these texts is they're talking about plays you know the play of what's happening on the planet and to touch on that just a little bit dude because i you know if if there are they are the watchers right like to watch society that they created if they want to stay in power you know it's a really easy life to just put yourself into you know doing like hollywood roles it's like oh my god they're acting crazy again but they're on top and they could be able to watch society like that you know if they if these anunnaki are on a certain cycle and they have to come around and you know make sure that they're little minions are doing everything correctly well they're not gonna come back as a janitor you know <laughs> they're gonna come back as yeah. mariah carey and just be like you know yeah worship me again because i'm your realer okay i'm your realer <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude that's actually interesting because i just came across an interesting schism in early christianity today where apparently there was there was a schism in early christianity um, having to do with the watchers and the fallen angels. So when the book of Enoch was still canon, uh, the early church felt like, or believed that sin was propagated when the fallen angels made it with human women. That was their explanation for sin. And they believed that that's really when everything got mixed, like messed up. And that's what we needed salvation from was from the mixing of that abomination. But then uh, things progress, and then the, the Constantinian dynasty happened, the Council of Nicaea, and then they did away with the Book of Enoch because they couldn't cope with the idea of angels being physical and corporeal for whatever reason. They just didn't like that. They didn't like that idea. So they kind of phased that out and then decided to kind of prop up this whole like false idea of Lucifer and his fall and his with pride so they said oh no it wasn't sin wasn't propagated by you know angels mating with with women it was propagated when you know lucifer you know the rebelled and his pride from god it was, it's pride it's human pride that wants to rebel against god that's sin that's what we need salvation from so they phased out the book of enoch it's not canon anymore uh, angels were never physical beings it was, they were always spiritual but there's a schism in early church where when Enoch was still canon, where Jesus was obviously telling us that there was a seed, a contaminated seed, a contaminated genetic line on this earth that was born of that abomination of the fallen angels and uh, women. And it was in that seed would physically need to be wiped out and that we would need to physically be separated from that seed. But of course, it'd be impossible in a world where everybody mixes. So that's why he came up with the idea of being saved spiritually. Like it's all good. If you have Nephilim blood in you, it's all good. But there's actually like a quote, one of Jesus's quote, where he says, to be saved, you must be born from above and not be born from the earth. And it was like a, like a, uh, clever little subliminal about that whole story like like you you must not be of that line of that genetic line 
but it's okay if you are, you know, he still loves you. You know, you can be saved. You just got to be reborn. It's that whole idea of being reborn, you know, cleaning yourself, that whole idea. So, um, but what I'm getting at this whole schism, they, within this doctrine, they believe that the fallen angels and their offspring would, would reincarnate that they would continue to reincarnate because they can't go to because they can't go to heaven they can't leave this earth so they had no other choice but to reincarnate into other bodies and that and that that there was a a line of people on this earth that were not human at all this was a schism going on in the early church based on the book of Enoch schism, that there was a, a, a group of people, a line, an offspring of people on earth that were not human at all, but uh, were actually possessed by the offspring of the Nephilim. And the church didn't like that because uh, they were probably the ones that were a part of that line. And they yet just to keep their story secret or to keep their uh, story underground, they they made sure that uh, that got swept up real quick. I mean, that I I wondered that too, you know, because I'm getting into studying like the Renaissance uh, era and just looking into like all of like the the magic they were doing then, you know, and it's like, you know, during the witch hunt or the witch craze when they're you know, burning all these witches that are burning all these books, any book that anybody had on any sort of magical tradition, or even if they thought that it had anything that was against the church law, they would take it and burn it sometimes, or they would just like, you know, ban you from having it. And it's like, wow, well, you know, it's kind of like when you get pulled over and the cops take all your drugs and they don't arrest you and they tell you to go on your way, which has never happened to me uh just saying that that's a thing that does happen to people and it's like hmm what are you guys doing with those things are you telling me i can't have you know you're telling me it's bad and i can't have them but you're going around and in using it and and you know and so this is kind of like what you're saying with the the not human bloodline and i mean there a lot of people feel that there is in fact a not human bloodline among us and some people feel like they are not from this planet. Like it's a, and if you meet somebody who feels that way, they feel pretty strongly about that. And so, you know, I mean, the consciousness and the mind is a thing and to elevate past that and to, you know, to, to, to understand what, what you know is real or what other people are telling you is reality, because that's really what it is. It's like for you to differentiate your own mind from the understanding of what reality is, it's what other people tell you reality is and what the common consensus of it is. And, you know, so when people feel so strongly about a certain thing and feel like a big passion about it, I don't know, you know, it's, it's interesting. So but that that's an interesting story. Um, I, I would love to feel free to send me any emails on, on links on that, uh, that Enoch, uh, schism canon era. Cause I'd love to read on that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I just came across that today. So I'll, I'll develop oh, nice. it a little more and then, uh, hit you up. <laughs> nice dude. Thanks man. <laughs> um, in in the Sumerian text or in the Sitchin stuff, he talks about these things called the MEs. Do you have any idea what what they might be or what you think they could be? Um, they seem to be referenced as like these these things that I think it's the Muzi that takes them from somebody else 
and they're kind of like the tablets of destinies, the decrees. Uh, what do you think those things are? Yeah, man, this is that's a great question. Uh, I don't know, and uh, <laughs> I'm bummed out because because <laughs> I keep I keep forgetting to research that. I've I've been asked that before, and um, man, I don't. They're 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 interesting things. So I want I want to have an answer for that because they play a huge role in uh in the upper echelon of the anunnaki like yeah they're like you said they're super important they're known as also as uh, the tablets of destiny and whoever's in control of the mes i guess seemingly controls civilization so i don't know it's it's a strange weird thing do you think uh because the tablets of destinies if if we're talking about celestial types of things do you think that maybe the tablets of destinies are kind of like the prophecies of the planets and the role that the planets play in their movement and cycles corresponds to the movements and cycles of us. And from that, you can prophesize what's going to happen to us in the future. And if mankind gets a hold of that, then uh, they can kind of re rewrite their own destinies because our destinies are being kind of kept from us or held down in a way uh, by you know the other powers that be. Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a great conjecture. Yeah, it could definitely be like, I mean, in those times, man, like the lay person was like, super probably unaware of anything, um, you know, beyond just like daily tasks. So they could just very much just have been log books of, of solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, you know, what, you know, seasons are going to be in what or whatever the equinoxes and maybe more, they could have been log books about certain genetic codes or certain you know, things like that. Yeah, they could have very much have been stuff like that. Because it seems like they knew about, like even in uh, the Sumerian tablets where they talked about the flood uh, and, and saving, uh, I forget, Utnapishtim? Uh, yeah. Uh, saving him and everything. It seems like they knew that there was going to be a flood coming uh, and they somehow could prophesize it. So either they knew from the celestial bodies or you know they were spacefaring and they knew some comet was coming or whatever but it seems more likely to me that like they just had knowledge of the skies and the planetary orbits that they knew something was going to come into contact or something was going to maybe hit earth or the we're going to go into a new area where you know the poles are going to melt or whatever it could be i don't know yeah but uh, it, it seems like they were able to prophesize of cataclysms uh, because maybe they had some foresight or knowledge of what was going on in the sky. Maybe that's why they were yeah, so man. concerned with what was going on in the sky is because they could prophesize those things to the people and then the people would think that they're gods. Yeah, I think so, man. I think you're right <laughs> on to it. It's definitely... In there you go. With that. Credit that chapter. <laughs> there you go. I'll put you in my bibliography. <laughs> yeah, Hour man. two, episode 76. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, man. Damn, I mean, we've been going deep, bros. Yeah. Uh, it's been shut it down right now, brother. So, uh, why don't you uh, tell the people where they can find you, find your work, your YouTube, what you got going on, and all that good stuff, man. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Esoteric Eddie. 
YouTube, Esoteric Eddie TV, uh, merch, EsotericEddie.com. I'm on other other platforms. I'm not too active on them, but, you know, if you find me, you find me. But, uh, yeah, just hit me up. Stay in tune with what I got going on. I'm trying to drop at least, you know, two to three videos a month now on YouTube. Got the second book dropping this September. And, uh, yeah, man, just, just follow the movement. And thanks for rocking with me. Putting in the work, man. Much appreciated, dude. It's uh, always a pleasure speaking with you, man. And uh, I'm still buzzing off the uh, Tetzkotli polka, too, uh, (laughs) because I I tell everybody about that episode. It's good, man. It's such a... I I hope you didn't put... You know how earlier you you like to do the work and put the cap on it, but I hope that the, the, the mezzo mythos is still flowing for you at some point maybe another book oh, yeah. on that stuff afterwards man because that's a it's i mean still so many mysteries done that rabbit hole too bro yeah oh yeah no there's so so much more to uncover there that's just one but yeah i'll get back to it nice 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 okay. well uh thank you very much eddie for joining us we appreciate it man yes sir and fire tribe if you're not down with that wake, wake. up